2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a teacher pay raise is one step closer to becoming law, and we hear a lawyer's perspective on renewed calls for justice for Emmett Till. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers in the House and Senate have come to an agreement on how the state can raise teacher pay. Leaders of a joint conference say the plan will offer teachers an average pay increase of $5,000 with new pay increases built in. Sherrod Reed is a teacher in Hattiesburg. He speaks with MPB's Kobe
1: Vance. As it relates to an increase in pay for teachers, um, and especially when we start talking about people that are leaving, and there's an exodus of people leaving this um, this business, as we call it, uh, for the simple fact of low you know low pay, they can go almost any place and almost either make what they're making for less work um, and so when we start thinking about that, you know we have to look at educators and you know things that they have that they bring to the table and some of the demands that's put placed on them so you know when we look at that, I think it's a win-win have you or anybody else that you work with
3: had to deal with? You know, working multiple jobs to try to make up for income? Yeah, I, I do it
1: now I still, um, I teach law and public safety, but also I work as I am a career police officer so I still actually work um, as a police officer when I get off um, you know, and have to pull in light, late shifts of course, getting off six, working 6pm 6 to 6am in the morning sometimes so just on the weekends so, um, you know, when it comes to that, uh, does this help? Yes it does cut back on some of the hours that I have to actually put in on the other job
3: To cut back, do you think you'll still have to keep doing that uh, until the lawmakers continue to raise teacher pay?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, You know, and it's just one of those things. Um, A lot of educators I know still work, you know, other jobs, and they will continue to do so because when you start looking at lifestyles, we got inflation increases on just about everything. So when when you look at that, um, I'm married with four children, with four girls. So when you put all of that together, um, you know, although I'm appreciative for it, but um, the math doesn't make sense still. So, you know, we look at that.
2: After the teacher pay plan receives formal approval from both chambers of the legislature, it'll go to the governor's desk. Coming up, a lawyer's perspective on renewed calls for justice for Emmett Till. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's Department of Education plans to spend about $10 million of its Federal American Rescue Plan funding on new virtual tutoring services for students in the state. The services will be available to elementary, middle, and high schoolers in 121 school districts. That includes four charter schools. Dr. Marla Davis is the Department of Education's Associate Superintendent of Academic Education. She speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane.
4: We will have for the next three years, ending September 30th, 2024, online, on-demand, 24-7, access to live tutors for all students in grades 3 through 12 in English language arts and mathematics. Those services will also support students that may be um, where English is their secondary language and there's also supports that are available for some of our students that have special needs.
3: So if you can give us a little bit of a sense of what this is actually gonna look like in the classroom, how will this actually change the learning experience for public school students in the state?
4: So one of the things um, we always hear at the State Department um, from parents, and we also hear from from students, we hear from administrators, we hear from teachers, is that many of our students could benefit from having additional one-on-one support. And so what we see from this program is that this is definitely an extension of the classroom. And so oftentimes you have where a parent would love to provide tutoring services for their for their child by getting a private tutor. But private tutoring is oftentimes expensive. Um, So what this does is it, it breaks down the economic barriers that keep some of our families from actually receiving tutoring services. So we see this as an opportunity for those parents that otherwise may not be able to afford a private tutor to get the supports that their children may actually need.
3: But I just want to be sure these also could and likely will be used during school hours as well, correct?
4: That is correct.
3: Um, One of the Additional opportunities that our
4: classroom teachers have is not only being able to schedule tutorial services, but they also are going to have um, access to what's considered a data dashboard. And that data dashboard allows them to see 100% of all of their students in their classes, and it helps them to identify those students that could benefit from additional supports. And so that means um, a classroom teacher could definitely schedule tutoring during the school day, or they could identify students that could benefit from supports after school hours, and then, of course, communicate that with their parents.
3: Now, for those kids who might need specialized, you know, you're saying perhaps individual attention to help catch up or keep up with their studies, at least in some cases, could this be a digital, a a high-tech replacement for what used to be a a physical in-person role at the school to help give struggling kids some extra attention?
4: We don't see these tutoring services as being a replacement for core instruction, a classroom teacher, or even an interventionist. We see this as an extension to what's already taken place with those services that any of our schools may already offer. Secondarily, the ability for our students to upload whatever assignment, activity, worksheet that they're working on in real time is one of those features that makes this particular service a little more unique than some of the other tutoring services you might see. And so what that means is if a particular student is working on an activity or they're working on a math problem or they need help with um, an essay, they're able to take a snapshot of that particular activity, workshop, worksheet, whatever have you, upload it to the platform and work simultaneously, in real time with a live person. And so what that does is it, it provides a companion, if you will, for what's already taking place in the classroom. Um, what we also love about this opportunity is that the tutors are already trained not to provide strict answers. And so it's not where a student could upload their worksheet and say, show me how to do problem number three or is my answer correct? they're all trained in the Socratic method. And what that means is they're able to ask probing, thoughtful questions that are also content um, specific. And so what that means is they guide the student through understanding how to solve the problems, how to annotate and how to get to the response as a team. And so that's also a value add because it reinforces what um, good instructional practices are already in place in the state of Mississippi.
3: Now, you say a live person, but it is through a screen, right? And I suppose that's a lot of people say we, we we tried virtual learning. We tried learning through a screen, especially for younger kids during the height of the pandemic. And for the most part, I think there's a near consensus that it was pretty disastrous, that kids did fall behind, that kids dropped off completely. I'm wondering if, if A, that remains a concern, and also, B... Uh, per paper's website, paper being the company that, correct me if I'm wrong, you're contracting through to provide these services. Per their website, a lot of their uh, their, their tutors are, for example, college students. They're not necessarily certified teachers. And again, my question would just be, you say that this isn't replacing any particular roles in the school, but if this is happening during school time, this is education coming from an unlicensed person that would otherwise in a traditional school setting be coming from a licensed person, correct?
4: So um, a couple of things, I guess I kind of want to hit on the first question that you asked as it relates to- Please, yes, uh, and I
3: apologize. Those were, uh, it was a two-parter. I'm not (laughs) sure that the two parts are completely (laughs) related. So so please take your time and spread it out. And if you'd like me to repeat anything, please just let me know. Uh
4: think i'm i think i'm gonna try to capture let's see if i can let's see how i do at it okay so um one of the things i think that's a little bit different than what you would see in a virtual classroom setting when you're in a virtual classroom setting it's a teacher with a group of students what you're going to see when you receive these virtual online supports through tutoring with a live person is that it's one-on-one And that's vastly different than um, learning a lesson in a group of uh, 15 to 20 other students in a virtual classroom. The the other uh, value add to that is that it allows the students to get personalized supports. And so what that means is the student, again, is able to access and upload what they're working on right there in that moment. So our tutors are fully aware of what our college and career readiness standards are in ELA and also for math. the second thing I think you touched on was you were asking the question about the the personnel or the tutors that are um, going to be offering the supports. They have actually um, employed additional staff um, per our request, um, but also because of the, the magnitude of supports that are needed for the state of Mississippi, their additional supports are through certified classroom teachers that are also again knowledgeable about the college the Mississippi um college and career readiness standards and so you're going to see where um the tutors are not only possibly um college students yes but many of them could be pre-service teachers paraprofessionals retired teachers or even current classroom teachers of course not not taking from our classroom teachers but where many of them are credentialed teachers and so we're um very excited about the uh, vetting process that this vendor has put in place to ensure that the tutors that are working with our students are adept to do so.
3: This industry of online tutoring is relatively new. It exploded, of course, in 2020 in the early months of the pandemic. This company paper, specifically like a lot of its competitors uh, is, is growing very aggressively right now. I know they just raised a ton of money. What would you say to the concern that this is just too prof- too experimental for Mississippi students who may already feel a little bit like the public education system in the state has been doing a lot of experimenting in recent years?
4: So um, I probably would push back just a little bit. So tutoring in and of itself is not new. I think the, the platform of using it through virtual means may be relatively new but there's research out there um, from the Annenberg Institute, Brown University, a number of uh, other high profile very reputable research bases that identify that this is evidence-based strategies that help mitigate learning loss and help accelerate learning and so while doing it in this fashion on a large scale may seem relatively new there's research out there that backs uh the impact that tutoring has on students and you know here in at the mde we're definitely uh for utilizing those strategies that we think can help our students and we know that usage is going to look different across the state it's going to look different across a particular district it's even going to look different within an individual classroom but we know that. There's going to be some students that are going to, and their parents that are going to be jumping for joy, knowing that I might have been a little afraid to ask that question today in class, but I can go home in the privacy of my own room and get that one-on-one support that I know I need. And that's what makes us very excited about having this for our students.
2: Dr. Marla Davis is Associate Superintendent of Academic Education at Mississippi's Department of Education. Still ahead, a lawyer's perspective on renewed calls for justice for Emmett Till. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Family members of the late Emmett Till met in Jackson this past weekend to call for Mississippi's Attorney General to bring murder charges against Carolyn Bryant Dunham. In 1955, Dunham told her husband, Roy, that Till had whistled at her outside a grocery store in Money, Mississippi. Roy and his half-brother proceeded to kidnap, torture, and kill Till. They were found not guilty for their crimes by an all-white jury. Decades later... A writer named Tim Tyson claimed Dunham confessed to him she lied about the whistling incident. But even if Tyson's allegation is true, it's unlikely Dunham will ever face charges relating to the lynching. That's according to Ron Rischlock, who's a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law.
0: I think it's very difficult to to make a case any time. You know, a case gets a year old, it's tough. And we're talking about a case that's uh, over 60 years ago. Number one. Number two, what the the man did to Emmett is unforgivable and horrible and terrible. What Carolyn Bryant said, um, if it was a lie and there is debate about that, a prosecutor would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she lied to her husband back at the time. Even that wouldn't necessarily make her part of the murder because you wouldn't think necessarily that that would go into that. So you'd have to, in essence, as a prosecutor, and that's how you got to look at this. Can I prove that she took part in this, this horrific murder, uh, that that she meant to do that when she told this to, to her husband? And we have to prove it's a lie, too, because, I mean, there was actually conflicting evidence about that.
2: Yeah, because there were um, testimony that he didn't whistle, some that he did. I know that the U.S. Justice Department reopened the case for several years and closed it again.
0: So Right. I mean, I, it, it looks like the, the Justice Department did take seriously these – there's an allegation that she said to an author back in, I think, 2007 – that this was a lie, that uh, Emmett had not done these things. When confronted, she denies telling the author that, and the author does not have recordings or transcripts to prove that she said that. So there's a, that would be a difficult thing to, for a prosecutor to prove in court. But when this came out, the, the, the Department of Justice took it seriously enough to reopen the investigation, uh, and after a few years of investigation concluded they couldn't make that case, so they once again uh, closed it. So, you know, what is the likelihood that reopening now there's something new that has come up? I, although there's a demand uh, for prosecution, I don't know that I've seen new evidence uh, that's come up in the last ten years that you know would suggest that she somehow intended the result or participated in the crime or or anything like that.
2: Back then. You know, during that period of time with Jim Crow, couldn't it be argued that when she told her husband she knew that there were going to be repercussions because of the cultural
0: rules of the time? I mean, absolutely, she knew there were going to be repercussions. Did she know it was going to go to the extent it went to? I would think that that would not be easy to prove at all. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's horrific, it's unforgivable what, what, what the, the, her husband and his stepbrother did. But to to prove that she knew or intended that that would be the result, I, I think, is, you know, absent a confession, uh, is going to be a very hard thing to prove in court.
2: Are you aware of any cases where something someone said led to a murder and the person who initiated by what they said was prosecuted?
0: There have been cases where people have encouraged someone to commit a crime. So, for instance, if I said he did this to me, go kill him. At, at that point, I can be prosecuted for what I said. I've, I've actually solicited a crime. Um so, so it is possible. However, in those instances, the intent on the part of the speaker is very clear. Even taking the allegations uh, at the, the, the worst that we've seen, in this case, I'm not sure that I've seen any allegation that uh, Carolyn uh, encouraged or directed her husband and, and his stepbrother to commit this crime.
2: So it appears that this is a heinous crime that no one really ever paid the price for through the justice system.
0: I mean, that's true. The the, um, the the two men were acquitted by all-wide juries, and, and that, I think, was a complete miscarriage of justice. Um, Emmett's mother insisted on the open coffin, which... Was an important spark for the civil rights movement. I It's incredibly important and, and and brave and difficult on behalf of the mother to have done that. But but she said, "I want people to see what, what horrific things happened to my boy." Um, and, I, and and yeah, there, there there's that that hunger, that that desire that someone pay the price here. I'm just not sure that it's possible to uh, you know look at this. Um, I think 88 year old woman Carolyn. and say that she's, she's someone who we can legitimately prove and make pay that price.
2: And apparently there was a deathbed confession from one of the participants who talked about his involvement, and we're talking upwards of as many as a dozen or 14 men involved in this at some points. Where does it go from here? You just, for the family, um, what would you suggest in terms of the legal aspect of this and how they should look at it?
0: You know, I mean, that's such a difficult question. Uh, Number one, Emmett very likely or quite possibly would still be alive today but for this horrific crime. I think we have to say that and and his family lost out on knowing him uh sharing moments with him uh learning with him and from him so i mean all of that's lost and you can't get that back no matter what you do what there there is uh what can be taken from it is that we're in a much different place today than we were in 1955 what his mother did by insisting that they not Put this aside and lock it away where no one can know about it. What what, what she did uh, was an important catalyst in the whole civil rights movement from the 1950s through the 1960s. And Emmett is still remembered because of that, because of that bravery, and uh, the world's a better place because of the decision, particularly that Emmett's mother made. There there's there's a lot of power. There should be a lot of power in that. I mean that's that, that's what I think. You can take away from, from this.
2: Professor Ron Richlock with the University of Mississippi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this and give us some insight.
0: Well, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it and I appreciate it and I, I wish the best for the family.
2: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's AutoCorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio. Enjoy the sun today.